0: on the theme of love in the whole of scripture. This is this is all about love in this in this section. More than any other part of the Bible. Of all the biblical writers, John loves to talk about love. And so as we're reading it, let that sink in that that love for our Christian walk is vital. Right? It's an essential part of what it means to be a Christian, knowing love and and loving others. If he repeats it that many times, it's got to be vital to what it means to be a Christian. And So remember, the question we're asking for this part of the series is, what defines a Spirit-filled Christian? And the answer is a Spirit-filled Christian knows the God of love. And so the message John is communicating to us through this passage is that because God is love and has first loved us, so also we should love as a way to display God to the world. And so, the Spirit-filled Christian loves in three ways. And I've got it in your outline in the bulletin there. The Spirit-filled Christian loves, number one, because God is love. Number two, in response to God's love. And number three, in order to display God's love to others. So let's look at that first idea, that the Spirit-filled Christian loves Because God is love. Because God is love. Look at verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Love is what we experience from the earliest memories of of our childhood. It's, as a dictionary puts it, love is an intense feeling of deep affection a deep affection. Think of the times in your life where you experienced the most love from someone else. Was it childhood? How about falling in love with your spouse those first weeks and months of getting to know your spouse and and pronouncing your love to your spouse? Being loved and expressing love to, to someone else is one of the best feelings in the entire human experience true love as a child right when you're dating or when you have your spouse the point is we naturally are hard- hardwired to love we are lovers and i would argue that we uh, that more than beings who think in a deeper way we are beings who love that we aren't thinkers primarily we're lovers that we love things, that we desire things, that ultimately is what drives us as people. And that's natural. That's a natural kind of thing. That our capacity to love and feel loved comes from God himself. Look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. The very capacity to love comes from him. Yet, we can have disordered and twisted loves can't we? Ever since the fall, we struggle with our loves. It doesn't mean we love less. It means we can love things we shouldn't or in the wrong way. And John actually in this this letter has already warned us not to love certain things. Remember chapter 2 verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we can actually love things that we shouldn't and display that love in a wrong way. If you remember Paul's words in 2 Timothy 4, he says, Demas, one of the fellow workers that he had um, in the church, he said, Demas, in love with this present world, has abandoned me, has left me. So we can love things that we shouldn't. But let's look at the phrase, God is love. God is love. What a, what a loaded statement. I mean, I could preach five sermons on that, that God is love. What does that mean? What does it not mean as well? Well, the first thing I want to say about that is a loving God is unique to Christianity. A loving God is unique to Christianity. Of all the major world religions, a loving God is different. In The Reason for God, Tim Keller's book on apologetics, he shares about his exploration in Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and Confucianism and how his theory was debunked that at the core... Of all world religions was the belief in a loving God. See, he thought all religions had this belief in a loving God. But as he studied these religions, it was not true. He discovered that only Christianity speaks of a living God who is love and who personally loves his creation. For example, Buddhism doesn't believe in a personal God at all. And love is the action of a person, not a divine being. And Islam speaks of God's mercy but never about God's loving mercy extended to the world by sacrificing himself for us so that we might be forgiven. To a Muslim, such language of love would be considered disrespectful to the divine. Keller discovered that for all other major religions besides Christianity, love is not the dominant ruling attribute of God. So that's the first thing, that a loving God is unique to Christianity. Christianity. Secondly, though, we need to remember this, that God, not our culture, defines what love is and is not. Um, I think our culture has no issue with that verse, God is love. I think our culture fully embraces that verse, God is love. People love to say God is love. But I think people misunderstand it. God's love is not blanket approval. Right, that is one thing we, we think of and God is loving. It's just pure, unconditional love. It doesn't mean he approves of, affirms or celebrates our sin. That's not, that's not his love. As well, God's love doesn't cancel out our holiness our, or, or his holiness or his sovereignty or, or his righteousness, those things as well are a part of who he is. John has already described earlier in chapter 1 that God is light. Right? If God is light, therefore speaking about truth. that He is the essence of truth. Recently someone mentioned the, the book The Shack to me. I don't know if you guys remember that book. It was actually made into a movie as well. The Shack, very popular. Maybe you've read it. Um, and The Shack dealt with a lot of hard questions. I think at the center of the story was a man who lost his daughter, a young daughter, she died, and he's dealing with grief. He's dealing with, how does God play into all this with evil and and death? and What does all this mean? So it attempted to answer these questions. uh, Tim Keller wrote a, a response to this, and he said, The shack insists that God doesn't give us any rules or even have any expectations of human beings. All he wants is relationship. But the reader of the lives of Abraham, Jacob, Moses, and Isaiah will learn that the holiness of God makes his immediate presence dangerous or fatal to us. Someone may counter that because of Jesus, God is now only a God of love, making all talk of holiness and wrath and law obsolete. But when John, one of Jesus' closest friends, long after the crucifixion, sees the risen Christ in person, in Revelation chapter 1, what does he do? He fell at his feet, though dead, when he sees Jesus. <coughs> Keller writes, The shack effectively de- deconstructs the holiness and transcendence of God. It's simply not there. And in its place is unconditional love. Period. The God of the shack has none of the balance and complexity of the biblical God. Half a God is not a God at all, is not God at all. There's another modern text that sought to convey the character of God through story. It also tried to embody the biblical doctrine of God in an imaginative way. That story contained a Christ figure named Aslan. Unlike the author of the shack, however, C.S. Lewis was always at pains to maintain the biblical tension between the divine love and his overwhelming holiness and splendor. In the introduction to his book, The Problem of Pain, Lewis cited the example from the children's text, The Wind and the Willows, where two characters, rat and mole, approached divinity. Afraid? murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, and yet, oh mole, I am afraid. Lewis sought to get... a this across at many places through his Narnia tales. One of the most memorable is the description of Aslan. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So You see, as we think about God's love, we cannot remove it from his holiness or his justice or his sovereignty or his righteousness. We can't just say, yes, he's unconditionally loved at all times. We have to learn about his nature. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, God is love, and therefore the more I know God, the more I will know that God is love, and the more will I know about love. So if you study the Bible and and what it says about God's nature, you'll know more about what love is. And and think about your own life and your own struggles, your own sins. It would be unloving, would it not, if God never exposed our sins. If he just let us go off in our own sins and, and be in danger. Think about if your child is in danger. If your if your little boy or girl runs out to the road while oncoming cars are, are coming. And how would you feel um, if you how would you think about yourself if you never corrected your kid when that happened or you never got angry? Right? Love gets angry sometimes. Love pursues. There is wrath in love but it's always meant to protect as we warn and correct. And we know God is love not merely because He says He loves, but actually He shows it to us. We experience His love. And there's different ways throughout the Scriptures that we see His love. The first one is through creation. Just the mere fact of this world and this universe that we see was created out of God's love. Do you remember the declarations in Genesis 1 of it is good when he creates everything? It is good, it is good, it is good. That is out of his love that he made those things. I was just going on a run yesterday in Windsor Castle Park, and today as well, the beautiful 70-degree temperatures, beautiful days shout that God is love and that he loves his creation. It's a gift. So that's the one way we see it. It's through creation, but it's also through providence and the way God governs the world, the way he maintains the world. He says, Jesus said in Matthew 5, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his rain. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So What what Jesus is saying is that God continues to love the creation. He continues to love the people of the world, even if they're his enemies, by maintaining the world, by having the sun rise and the rain come. Lamentations 3 says, His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. So when you see the sunrise in the morning, that's God's providential love. Thirdly, though, we see his love through redemption. That he sent Jesus to save a fallen world. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. So for God so loved the world. What does he mean by world? So in John's gospel and in 1 John, world always means the badness of the world or the evil world out there. And so in John 3.16, D.A. Carson says, God's love in sending the Lord Jesus is to be admired, not because it is extended to so big a thing as the world, but to so bad a thing, to so evil a thing. Not to so many people as to such a wicked people. When you read John 3.16, think of it like that, 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 that for God so loved this evil world, and his love was amazing that he sent his only son. So so because of that, we believe in the free offer of the gospel, right? That his, that his word ought to go out, that the gospel ought to go out to everyone because he has chosen to send his son to save. In a fourth way, we see his love in Scripture through his special saving, through his selecting love for his elect, for his church, for his bride. That's a special type of love. It's a, it's a special love just like a... a A love of a husband with a wife. There's a special love there. And the elect may be the nation of Israel who he chose, or the church, or specific individuals even. That's where we see all this language of choosing. If you remember uh, in um, Exodus 34, the way he describes himself to to, to love his people is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. So He's loving his people, keeping covenant with them in a special way that he doesn't do with the entire world. And if you're a believer today, he has a special love for you, that he called you and that he saved you, that he doesn't have that same kind of love generally for the whole world. And when we think about why he chose us or why he chose Israel, D.A. Carson says the striking thing about these passages is that when Israel is contrasted with the universe or with other nations, nothing of personal or national merit is mentioned. He doesn't say, I chose you, Israel, because of your army size or because you're this many people or because you're the strongest and the greatest. No, he doesn't say any of that. He says, "I I called you and I chose you because I love you. Leon Morris says his love for us depends not on what we are, but on what he is. That is what his selecting love rests upon. And we also see that his love is most importantly seen in the Trinity himself, the Trinity itself. And we don't often think about this, but the love that that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father, do we think about that? Um, It's the foundation. It's the very foundation of why he loves us or how he could love us. Think about. I'll give you an illustration. It's sort of like when when kids don't admit it, but they really like it when they see PDA between their mom and dad. When their mom and dad are hugging or or getting cozy on the couch. It's like our kids don't quite know what to do with that, right? That weird look comes over their face, but you can tell deep down they like it. They're like, I love it when mommy and daddy are together and love each other. That gives me security. It gives me comfort to see that. Um, And so in a similar way, the father loves the son. And the son loves the father from eternity. In fact, if they didn't love each other, the love to us would be in question, would it not? But their love exists from eternity and it will always exist. And it's the very basis and foundation of the love we experience from them. And so, the Spirit-filled Christian loves. One of the greatest texts in Scripture about love is, and we often hear it at weddings, is 1 Corinthians 13, through 8 And so, hear here how love is described, that we are to measure up to, to think about how we to um, exude this love. Paul says, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That is the high calling of God's love to us, that we are to show others. And notice that it goes deeper than just acts of kindness and altruism and and even delivering our body over to be burned, he says. What is your motivation? Is it because of love? So that's the first point, that we love because God is love. Secondly, the Spirit-filled Christian loves in response to God's love. Look at verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So not that we have loved God, he has loved us friends love is what we feel when great acts of kindness are done to us i want you to consider think back in your life what is the greatest act of kindness someone has done for you the greatest act of love humanly speaking think back in your life i was just thinking about this this morning and i know it's father's day and all so happy father's day but when i think back to that question it's my mom honestly, that I think back to. It's, it's my mom's consistent love when I was in high school, when I was lost, when I was, kind of, when I was wandering, doing whatever I wanted, rejecting God, rejecting the church. It was her consistent love and grace to me during those times. The love you feel is greatest when you know you don't deserve it. The love you feel is greatest when you know you don't deserve it and yet you receive it anyways. (coughs) In the measure of God's love, so how do we measure God's love? How do we we put a measuring stick on it? How do you know how big it is and how great it is? The measure of God's love, though, is knowing the depths of our sin. You you understand what I'm saying? The, The measure of his love is knowing how sinful you are. Look again at verse 10. In this is love, not that we've loved God, So why does he start with that? Not that we've loved God. We need to not, don't don't read over that too quickly. Lloyd-Jones says, the first measure of God's love is this, that men and women down in the dregs and depths of sin, deserving nothing but wrath and with nothing to be said for them. And the whole argument of the New Testament is that until we see that simple truth about us, we do not begin to know anything about the love of God. If you do not know your condition, you will not understand the love of God. If you do not know your, yourself to be a sinner, why care about the love of God? And when people show us love, it's, it's, an, it, it, it's an amazing truth of God's love as well. But, but sin and suffering reinforce our negative outlook on life and others. When evil is done in the world, when instead of love, hatred is done toward you, it can actually the opposite effect in your life and you begin to hate others and you have a negative outlook. But when love is shown to you, everything changes, doesn't it? Or it should. Friends, only those who know the kindness, the generosity, and the love of another are capable of of extending it. It reminds me of a parable that Jesus told in Matthew 18. Jesus said, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. It's a lot of money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, and all he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, I have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity him the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt but when that same servant went out he found one of his fellow servants who owed him just a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him saying pay what you owe so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him have patience with me and i will pay you right this very same words that he he spoke but he refused and he went and put him in prison until his debt should be paid. And when the fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported it to the master that all had taken place. And the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. He had this kindness to him, a a debt he could never pay back. Millions and millions in, in our language of dollars. What was the issue? What was the problem? The man never truly embraced that grace and forgiveness. He never really welcomed it and was thankful for it. He assumed it. He assumed that he deserved it instead of something that was given graciously to him. And that's where it all broke down. Brothers and sisters, God gave up his most prized possession to save us and love us. You see, the most amazing thing about love in Christianity is not just the mere knowledge of God's love, which we talked about in point one. That is amazing, but it's not just that. The most amazing fact about our faith and about what Jesus did for us is that this love is directed to you and me. It's not some principle, some concept out there. But he actually, the living God, turns that love toward you and me. And that word, propitiation, that's that's how our salvation was achieved. It's a big word. If you have the NIV, it's um, the uh, the atonement is really the the word. But really what it means is the wrath of God was satisfied. That That holy, just, Anger and punishment that was due to you and me because of our sin was turned away, appeased and satisfied on Jesus on the cross. Verse 9 of our passage says, God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God gave, you you want to know another measure of God's love? I talked about the love the father has for the son. He gave his most prized possession. You want to know his love for you? He gave everything for you. Again, from John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. D.A. Carson says, In eternity past, the father loved the son, and the son loved the father. There's always been an an other orientation towards God's love. It's always other-directed. And all the manifestations of the love of God emerge out of this deeper, more fundamental reality that love is bound up in the very nature of God. God is love. How does that make you feel? That the measure of God's love to us is also seen in what He gave up to get us, to win us. The measure of His love to us is what He gave up to get us. And so the application for us is this The spirit-filled Christian loves the unlovely. We were not lovely. You and I were not very pretty. We were not uh, to be desired. The key to loving unlovely people is knowing God's love for you despite your own unloveliness. Turn it back on yourself. If you're having trouble today loving someone who you just don't like or care for, think about God's love for you when you were most unlovely. That's, that's how we know. That's how we know we can love. And so we love in response to God's love. Third point, last point. The spirit-filled Christian loves in order to display God's love. So we love because God is love. We love in response to his love. And then lastly, we love to display God's love, to put it on display. To put it on display. Let's look at verse um, 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. But no one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I want to hone in on what he's saying here in verse 12, that no one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God abides in us. The point here is that we share what we come to love. We share what we come to love. When he says no one has ever seen God, that might throw you off balance. Not sure what he means by that. What does John mean? For instance, didn't people see Jesus? And isn't he God? Yes, he is. But what John is saying is that no one has seen God the way we will experience him in glory. No one will see God in all of his holiness, his bright uh, radiance of holiness. Right? Even the, the cherubim in heaven have to have to... Uh, put the uh, wings over their eyes to cover them, to protect them, because God's holiness is so bright, it would consume you. We get glimpses. People in the Old Testament and New Testament get glimpses of God and the transfiguration and, and, and Moses on the mountain, but we haven't seen him fully. That will be in glory. So what he's saying is no one has ever seen God that way but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What he's saying is if we love, we make the invisible visible. Right? The invisible God becomes visible when we do that. C.S. Lewis said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but com- completes the enjoyment. It's its appointed consummation. What he's saying there is we can't just enjoy a movie or a book or a good joke or something that we're really passionate about. We can't just, just enjoy that if we keep it to ourselves. We've got to share it. And it's actually in the sharing of that that we find enjoyment. I was probably told to go see Top Gun 2 by more people recently than any movie that I can remember. And so I went and went saw it with Hannah. It was a good movie. Um, but people so enjoy and I enjoyed it, but people so enjoyed that movie, they had to tell me to go see it, right? And that telling someone, praising something that you've enjoyed actually makes you enjoy it more. Do you notice that? When you tell somebody about it, when you, when you praise it, and when you evangelize to go see Top Gun 2. I'm going to tell you a quick story as I begin to close. In 1851, and this is from Ray Orland, this, this story. In 1851, a group of British missionaries to Tierra del Fuego was forced to winter in the bitter cold while they waited for their supply ship to arrive. And it came too late. They all died of cold and starvation. And on Good Friday, one of those men, April 18th, Richard Williams, a surgeon and a Methodist lay preacher, wrote in his journal, and they they discovered his journal later, he wrote, Poor and weak Though we are, our abode is a very Bethel to our souls. Bethel meaning house of God. And God we feel and know is here. Meaning he's, he's basically about to die. He's writing this. And on Wednesday, May 7th, he wrote, Should anything prevent my ever adding to this? Let all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond description when I wrote these lines and would not have changed situations with any living man. You see, he facing death would not have traded places with anybody else because he was happy with God. I'm reminded of John 14. It says, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. When you finally get what I'm preaching this morning, when you finally get the gospel... This good news, you treasure it, it makes you happy, and you can face anything. And not only that, you will write about it, you will tell people about it, you will share it because it excites you, because it's, you're saved from death. You're saved from your being locked in jail of your sin. You've been freed from that. And so he writes this, it's an amazing uh, line that he's happy beyond description as he's about to die, because he's doing what he loved, sharing the gospel, sharing the, the best message in the world. If it's true for you, if it's, if, it's, if it's gripped your heart, you'll share it with others. And so there's a real tragedy in the church if you keep the gospel locked up for yourself and you don't share it. Why would you do that, right? Why would we do that? We'd sh- we want to share it. We want to give it away so that others can enjoy it too. And the way we do that, the reason we do that, is because God does not keep himself from us, but he gave us himself. Jared Wilson says that the greatest good, God, offers the greatest action, love, to the greatest need, wrath owed sinners, by sending the greatest treasure, Jesus, in the greatest invitation to everyone into the greatest life, everlasting, right? Do you notice all those greatest? God gives us himself so that we will have full joy forever and ever, and we will tell people about that. We will put God on display. So we love because God's love. We love in response to his great love, and we love to show God to others. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. Where would we be without it? We'd be lost. And we know your love um, allows us and and motivates us to do all things, to, to go to great lengths, to face evil, to face persecution and suffering because of your love for us. And not only that, because of the Holy Spirit that you've placed into us to remind us of these truths. So thank you, God, thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for doing this work. Would you continue it to save us and to love us? For your love never runs dry, it never goes away. Your mercies are new every morning. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.